Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. If you're new to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast and you like what you hear today, give the show a review on iTunes and be sure to subscribe so that you can be notified when new episodes become available. If you would like to become more involved and help support some of the costs of running the podcast, head over to the show's Patreon page at patreon.com slash cmtuhistory. I have two exciting author interviews scheduled for later this month in February. If you would like one of my guests to answer a question from you, consider becoming a Patreon patron. Patrons can get an advanced schedule of who will be appearing on the podcast, as well as the ability to submit their questions that guests can answer in upcoming episodes of the show. I've already spoken to the two guests scheduled for February, and they are very excited about the possibility of answering listener questions. And as always, if you would like to get in touch with me, I'd love to hear from you on social media. I'm at facebook.com slash cmtuhistory, on Twitter at cmtuhistory, and on Instagram at cmtuhistory. Now on to this week's episode. My guest today is Dean Job. Dean is a professor of creative nonfiction and journalism at the University of King's College in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He has been a newspaper staff writer and freelance journalist for over 35 years. During that time, he has received numerous awards in the United States and Canada for his investigative reporting. A lover of true crime and crime fiction, Dean writes a monthly true crime column for Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine called Stranger Than Fiction. Dean joins me from Nova Scotia via Skype to talk about his seventh book, Empire of Deception, the incredible story of a master swindler who seduced a city and captivated a nation. Through his extensive research, Dean uncovered the tale of a largely forgotten con artist whose investment scheme put Charles Ponzi to shame. Today we cover the economic atmosphere of the Roaring Twenties that made Chicago ripe for the picking for a lawyer named Leo Koritz to implement his, quote, big idea, how Koritz built an imaginary investment empire that made himself and his early investors fantastically wealthy, and how even the most carefully built house of cards eventually falls down. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast Bringing you strange but true things from the past It's not the average history that you learned in school We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools And stories that are just too crazy to believe The stranger than fiction and super unique Dean Job, welcome on the podcast Hi, thank you. How are you today, sir? Well, I'm very well, thanks. Good. Um, well, uh, thank you for taking the time to join me today. Uh, you are the author of Empire of Deception, a very fascinating book about uh, true crime swindle in the 1920s. And uh, I was wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about you and how you found this topic. Well, I'm a writer in uh, Nova Scotia, Canada. And uh, I was a journalist for uh, better than two decades, and I, I now teach journalism and nonfiction writing at the School of Journalism at the University of King's College in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And um, I have always been fascinated with history. I covered courts for a long time, so I gravitated to uh, cases, old cases, uh, true crime, and uh, that's how I found out about this fantastic 1920 swindle. Uh, I was uh, just doing some research on another topic in our uh, provincial archives, and I stumbled on a on a card. And this was in the days of card indexes, 
and uh, I stumbled across a reference to uh, this fellow Leo Koritz uh, being arrested here in Nova Scotia after being a fugitive from justice in Chicago where he had stolen millions of dollars. That's a, a very wonderful chance find um, because he turned out to be a, a very fascinating story and w with a lot of information for you to work with. Well, that's right. It, uh, it took some digging because um, um, I, I guess the journalist in me wants a scoop and one of the first things I thought is, well, this fellow, uh, it sounded like such a fantastic story that he would end up washed up here in Nova Scotia. And uh, uh, so the first thing I did was to see if there were ever, you know, any books written about him. And uh, to my uh, surprise, but also delight, uh, there weren't. This was a number of years ago. Um, he's the kind of guy who pops up in anthologies, uh, some true crime anthologies. Uh, there are anthologies of famous swindlers. Uh, but once I was hooked on, on his story, I just kept digging from there and and found just a, a wealth of information about how he had run his scam and also uh, uh, what he was like. And, and what I really found was just how incredibly skilled he was at uh, separating people from their money. Yeah, one thing that struck me in reading the book um, that really surprised me is that, yeah, he's, he's relatively unknown and his operation was just on such a vast scale. He, you would think he would be part of um, at least pop pop culture at this time. Well, he uh, he was in a way a victim of his own success. Um, one of the reasons um, I think he was flying, he flew under the radar in his life, but he ran uh, various versions of uh, of uh, his scams for more than twenty years. And he was in the business of a Ponzi scheme before it had a name. In comparison, uh, the Ponzi scheme, this idea of uh, of uh, the uh, money uh, drawing on capital to pay dividends in this endless uh, mill of money where there's really no principle. People think they're investing, but they're simply being paid back out of other people's money, money creating this uh, large balloon. Uh, he pulled that off for 20 years. And one of the things I found in my research uh, was that by carrying this on for 20 years, about the only person who's ever rivaled that in history is uh, Bernie Madoff with his incredible multi-billion dollar scam uh, in the uh, about a decade ago. Um, so uh, I was fascinated with how Leo could pull this off, but it's one of the reasons why I think he's uh, so little remembered. Uh, a fellow named Charles Ponzi came along in the midst of Leo Kortz's scam. This was uh, Charles Ponzi in uh, Boston, and for about nine months, he hoodwinked some people out of millions of dollars, claiming uh, sort of this uh, 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 bogus uh, uh, a scam, investment scam, and the Ponzi scheme became named for him. Leo, meanwhile, uh, has investors that are laughingly calling him our Ponzi, not realizing he's been doing the same thing. So in, in sort of a, a twisted or bizarre way, uh, Leo Koritz loses the glory, I guess. And uh, uh, I guess after my research, I'd argue that perhaps uh, we should be calling them Koritz schemes, uh, Koritz schemes instead of uh, Ponzi schemes. Well, certainly it's, it's very clear that what he did um 
very much eclipsed anything that Charles Ponzi ever attempted. Absolutely. One of one of the problems of, of a Ponzi scheme, to use that name, is to keep them going. Most career con men won't go near a, a Ponzi-type scheme. They want to uh, they want to set up uh, some kind of a ruse where there'll be a quick payday and they can leave town. Uh, the problem a Ponzi schemer has is he's, he's operating his scam in the open, even though claiming it's legit, but you're ultimately tied to it, and it only lasts as long as you can keep new money coming in. And that's why even a run of a few years in a Ponzi scheme is amazing. Uh, so to to do it for 20 years... Uh, Leo had to be just this consummate um, actor where he could continue uh, day in, day out, week in, month in to convince people to uh, uh, keep investing in his uh, his bogus schemes. Well, let's back up a little bit. I, I think part of his success can maybe be attributed to the climate of the ni- of the 1920s, the roaring 20s, especially in Chicago. Um, you quote a sports writer by the name of Westbrook Pegler, who described the 1920s as an era of wonderful nonsense. Can you tell us a little bit about the world uh, that your book is set in? Well, this this was one of the uh, uh, amazing things about his story, and it very much is a product of the times. But there are times that aren't so much different from our own, and, and that makes it fascinating. The 20s, as you said, the Roaring 20s, it was a time uh, people let loose after the the uh, carnage and sacrifice of the Great War. Uh, there was a wave of prosperity. Uh, consumerism uh, uh, went rampant. Everybody had to have a radio or a, or a Model T. And there was money to, to spend. So uh, people, a lot of people for the first time were living the good life uh, the, the average person was investing in the stock market on margin or credit uh, in the belief that uh, the good times would last forever. And again, this is, uh, this is a, sort of an ethos that, that sounds eerily familiar at times in, in recent history, maybe even today. But it was also wonderful nonsense in the sense of fads. Um, uh, everything from uh, the, the Charleston to uh, crossword puzzles became popular in the 1920s. People had leisure. Uh, the uh, They call it the jazz age because jazz was reforming the way people thought about music. And the morality was changing. This is the era of the flapper, the the, the newly liberated uh, young women who uh, were scandalizing their elders and uh, and uh, like everyone, uh, or a lot of a lot of other people, were uh, uh, caught up in this whirlwind of of uh, of, uh, of uh, romance and uh, glamour. And uh, I think you really only have to watch uh, the movies based on The Great Gatsby or read any F. Scott Fitzgerald to really get a sense of these uh, of of the times. Yeah, and it, it makes sense why we somewhat romanticized the era today it, it, it's a very interesting it, it would have been a very interesting time to be, to be alive and it also it also was ripe for this kind of a get rich quick scheme because people were getting rich uh, the stock market was booming people who'd put small investments into the stock market were doing well there were land booms in places like Florida uh, 
it was really an era of uh, of easy money and uh it was a perfect uh milieu for someone like leo koritz to walk in and say uh you know i have a way of making easy money and people really just throwing in their uh their chips and saying you know i'm with this guy he's he's done well i want a piece of this action so tell us a little bit about leo leo koritz's um background um because he doesn't come from a, a particularly wealthy family nothing uh would scream that he would be a a, a player, a high roller in the stock market. He has pretty humble beginnings, uh, immigrating from Central Europe, correct? That's right. He came from uh, Bohemia, which uh, is today part of the Czech Republic. It's uh, eastern uh, Czechos, uh, uh, eastern what used to be Czechoslovakia. Came over in the 1880s as a child. His uh, father uh, was a, a peddler in in Europe, uh, became a, an insurance broker in Chicago. Uh, the family was of, of limited means. Uh, they grew up on the north side of Chicago in a in a German speaking enclave. They were German speaking Jewish family, and uh, but there was something different about Leo. Um, he's the only one of his of his family, and he had numerous siblings, but he's the only one who finished high school. And this was in an era when one in a hundred children in Chicago finished high school. So he was, there was something uh, sort of Horatio Alger about him. And I think it's key to understanding how he falls into this uh, groove or this uh, calling that that seems to have been so uh, perfect for his uh, amiable, joking, wisecracking, a charming way this uh this uh, uh falling into this business of being a swindler he was a very persuasive charming suave and was able to convince people uh, of of uh, of anything uh that he was a multimillionaire investments and generous enough to uh, to share that wealth so as i said i think it was partly uh uh it became a uh, I would say a rags to riches story, but let's say it's a it's a rags to perceived riches story. Uh, but he was extremely ambitious and uh, and as I said, good at what he did. And he had to be extremely intelligent to do this. Well, one of the things that strikes me about uh, when I was researching him and when I talk about Leo Koritz is how did he ever keep everything straight? Because we're talking about a man who basically got up every morning and lived a lie for 25 to 30 years. He he did go to law school uh, at night. He put himself through law school. He did practice for a while as a lawyer, but he was really a, a sideline. He, he didn't do a lot of court work. He was mostly pretending to be this uh, 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 wealthy investor and, and ultimately an oil baron. So, so yes, he had to be extremely intelligent, uh, least of all just to keep it all straight, to keep his lies straight, uh, as I said, day in, day out. Um, because he wasn't just lying to his investors, he was lying to his, his entire family because they invested in uh, his schemes. And, uh, and again, so he couldn't, there was no one he could let his guard down to, and he didn't work with any accomplices. So... Uh, 
he was this one-man operation ultimately running this uh, very complex uh, scheme that he'd invented. It, while it was an invention, as I said, he had to keep all the lies straight because if anyone suspected he wasn't what he said he was, well, then the whole Ponzi scheme falls down. So how did he get his start uh, with this? He called it his big idea. How, did, how was he motivated <laughs> to start the big idea? Well, his big idea starts out in a very um, sort of pedestrian way. Um, Leo was newly married in the early years of the 1900s, struggling as a lawyer by his own admission. But one of the things lawyers could do is, is, uh, is arrange mortgages for people. And the way he described it later when it all, when he had to make accounts for everything, is that one day he succumbed, he succumbed to temptation. He uh, had a client looking for an investment, and he drew up a mortgage. The, uh, it was very common. Uh, you didn't necessarily have to go to a bank for a mortgage in those days. Uh, someone else could uh, uh, sell you properties and take a mortgage back, and you basically pay for your property on, uh, over time as you would paying a mortgage. Well, he drew up one of these mortgages for a client, but there was no property. It was all fake names, fake property. And what he did is he took the principal and started paying back the interest. So the mortgage holder was none the wiser. And then when that mortgage came due or he started running out of money to cover interest, he simply drew up another fake mortgage. And this started to snowball. And he even said at one point, I was drawing up fake mortgages like they were streetcar transfers. And what he had done is, uh, years before Ponzi, that is really the essence of the Ponzi scheme, where you're uh, taking in money that's supposed to be invested, but you're simply paying it back out to keep previous investors happy, and it starts to snowball. So he started off very modestly, and I think probably for a while thought he could pay his way out of it that a windfall would come along, he could make it all right, everyone would be satisfied. He eventually diversified into Arkansas rice uh, land, which was a huge investment just before the First World War in the United States. And that started off as legit, but after a while, he was taking investments in land that didn't exist or in farms that, uh, or in stock that was watered and not worth what he was selling it for. So he kept sort of diversifying, but always into a Ponzi-type scheme. And that's when he found out about the big idea. The big idea turned out to be a scam he was caught in. He ran into a friend of a friend, told him about valuable timberland in Panama. Now, at this point, the Panama Canal is being built. Panama is on the, uh, uh, the mind of Americans as a potential new resource frontier, Leo collects up some money from friends and and invests and ultimately starts thinking that maybe he's being taken and goes to Panama, Founds out, finds out he's been burned by a scam artist, nursing his wounds like most people would and saying, you know, I'll never do that again. What he did was he realized if he could be that easily taken, he could convince others to invest. And that's where he got the idea for his ultimate big idea, as you said it, 
the uh, the idea of saying that he owned a huge swath of resource-rich property in Panama. And so this fiction that he crafts, he calls it the Bayano Syndicate. What what was the Bayano Syndicate? Bayano is a river in, about 60 miles from Panama City, up the coast of of, uh, of Panama, and it's at this point totally unexplored, uh, little known. So it, it's got a ring to it, I guess. This is where his uh, the scam he's burned in was supposed to be uh, uh, centered. So he simply adopted the name and the idea. And uh, he uh, uh, goes bigger, thinks bigger, creates something called the Bayano River Syndicate, and starts selling shares to his friends back in Chicago. And at first, it's uh, timber that's doing really well. They're, they're, uh, he says they're selling... Uh, valuable mahogany and another sideline becomes uh, timber for uh, railway ties for the uh, Panama Canal project. No one is really asking too many questions because Leo always pays the profits, the dividends, always get paid on time. People are doing very well and um, um, but uh, as time goes on uh, and Leo had to make a decision because again it's it's getting big he needs to bring in new money he needs to keep the uh, the uh, ponzi scheme going so about 1920 he announces he's discovered oil on the property and that became that basically uh sets off a frenzy of of people desperate to get into this new uh, uh more valuable resource and and this is what becomes the Piano syndicates uh, marquee or uh, or uh, a big uh, a big sell as an investment is that uh, at a time when the oil industry is booming because of the demand of Henry Ford's Model T's and and an economy that's switching to oil, uh, Leo's got his uh, investors believing that they're in on the ground floor of this good thing. And just so we're clear, it's not as if he takes these people's money and then just spends it all. Some of his investors were making money off of this, correct? Well, this is what happens in a Ponzi scheme. Uh, if you get in early, this happened in Madoff. If you're in early enough, you not only get your investment back over time, again, over a number of years, you actually make the 10% profit uh, or whatever it is that the... Uh, the scam artist is claiming. So um, Leo is able to live very well off money he can siphon off. I mean, a lot of the money is recycled. It's put back into people's hands. So if, if you if you invested $100,000, 10%, every year you get $10,000, thinking your $100,000 investment principal was still there, but of course that's gone. But over 10 years you get your investment back. Um, but Leo was able to live uh, uh, very well off uh, the money and of course argued later he had to because if people were going to believe he was a millionaire well he had to live in a mansion and have Rolls Royce limousines and unlimited money to entertain his investors and that's what he did. Yeah, uh, you you describe a pretty lavish lifestyle that he lived um, right in downtown Chicago. Well, he uh, again. He he doted on his investors. Uh, was uh, was known for his generosity and his 
big-heartedness he he gave to charities. Of course, it was easy for him to be magnanimous and generous because it wasn't his money. Nobody realized this at the time. Uh, but yes, he would uh, hire hotels for private dinners. He would uh, he would entertain uh, his uh, his his investors quite lavishly. Um, he ultimately, when the Drake Hotel opened in Chicago, and it's still there on the lakeside, in the early 1920s, it was the uh, the swankiest hotel in uh, in Chicago when it opened, and Leo had a suite there, and that's where he would transact his business. He prohibition came along, and Leo made sure he had a stock of uh, illegal booze so people could have the best scotches and wines and things. And toast their success so he he laid it on uh, very thick and again it was uh, he was enjoying this lifestyle style obviously but uh, again you're not going to invest with someone who claims to be a millionaire unless they live and spend like they're millionaires and that's exactly what he did sure sure uh, he has to act the part one thing that I found really really interesting in the book uh, was that he's he didn't coerce anybody he didn't try to persuade that many people to invest he had people kind of beating down his door to get in well this is partly the magic of what he did um you would think that someone who needs new investment uh to keep the ponzi scheme going would be hitting up everybody he could that would be uh, uh almost going door to door saying invest in my oil fields but leo turned it on its head he made the stock hard to get. He would even turn people down, uh, professing that there weren't any shares available. He he understood the uh, the principle of supply and demand in the sense that he made uh, the supply of stock very small, knowing that this would increase demand. Uh, he would leave subtle hints. He would um, buy his flashy living leave the sense that you know he's doing really well and of course he's got an army of happy investors who are convincing their friends to get in on a good thing so as i said it it seems counterintuitive but by not really selling his stock he actually created a, a uh, a flood of demand for his stock. There's, there's stories that one fellow he'd been rebuffing was so desperate that he comes to Leo's office door and it's locked, but the transom window above the door is open. So he takes a packet of his money and throws it through, hoping that Leo will invest it. He, um, there's another story that uh, he had a, a banker on the hook who wanted to get in for tens of thousands of dollars. And the fellow wrote a check, and Leo made a big flash of this. He showed it to people going, look, this, and it was a big name in Chicago. I, I think it was one of the foremans, one of the bankers, and said, look, this fellow wants in. And, of course, people saw this and said, well, if, if a shrewd businessman banker like that wants in, you know, it's a more proof that Leo's legit. But what Leo ends up doing is he sends it back to the banker and says, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have any stock right now. So he actually sent it back. And as he had hoped, uh, the banker persisted and even bought more stock in the end. So there's just incredible but documented stories of just how, um, how much he uh, played hard to get 
and was still able to uh, attract uh, this this loyal following, but also this clamor of people desperate to get in on his uh, on his windfall. Who were these people that he was swindling? Who who were his mark? Was it just the upper crust of society? It was a lot of members of the Jewish community in Chicago that he knew uh, through charities, just through his, uh, a, a lot of people at his synagogue, Emmanuel Synagogue, including the rabbi. And as I mentioned, his entire extended family, his, uh, his siblings, his uh, uh, in-laws, his wife's family, even his mother and mother-in-law were investors. And again, Leo could, uh, well, I mean, he became known as the man who swindled his own mother. Now that sounds like about as heartless as anyone can get, and I, I don't think you can justify someone who would do that. It would put his own family in peril and take their money. But he did, uh, whether this is disingenuous or, or or not, he did argue that, well, he had to take their money or people would have suspected there was something wrong. So, um, again, it seems like a lame excuse, but again, uh, that became hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of investment came from his own family. But as the scheme grew, it went from a circle of friends to friends of friends uh, to uh, hundreds of people in Chicago. And most of them were fairly well off. They had money to invest. Uh, but there were other people who put their life savings in. Uh, there was one fellow uh, looks like he met on a train who was a porter who put his life savings in and lost it and uh, you know there were some hard luck stories but uh, he did tend to uh, surprisingly he preyed on a fairly sophisticated group of investors who should have known better let's take a short break from our discussion on empire of deception i assume you listen to this show because you enjoy learning about the history you never learned in school Well, another podcast you might like is the Cutting Class Podcast. Hosts Jess and Joe are a pair of high school history teachers from Tennessee who have a passion for the really interesting history that exists beyond what they can cover during the school year. Whether it's answering bizarre questions like why do communist countries like to mummify their dictators, or doing a deep dive on historical topics in the news like their recent three-part series on the presidency of the late George H.W. Bush, the Cutting Cast podcast is always informative and hilarious. I've become a big fan of their show, and I hope you'll check them out, too. Now back to my conversation with Dean Joe. Uh, surprisingly, he preyed on a fairly sophisticated group of investors who should have known better. Uh, yeah, that... That's a good point. The, the the people that he's mostly targeting, um, you know, immediate family aside, uh, should have known better. And and nobody seems to be asking, you know, questions. Where's the proof of the oil? Where is the, um, you know, any kind of a paper paperwork uh, documentation? Um, but eventually that does come to a head. Some people do decide to ask those questions and, and investigate a little bit more into what they're investing in. What what happened there? Well, as you said, for years, no one questions. Now, Leo was smart. He did up uh, 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 really elaborate share uh, share certificates that he must have gotten printed somewhere that looked extremely, they looked legitimate. He would show off blueprints. He even had a habit he could talk. He talked knowingly about the other syndicate members. He'd say that, 
you know, oh yeah, so-and-so, you remember him, yes. Well, he was saying the other day, no one ever met these people, but Leo talked about them like they were real. So for years, uh, everyone seemed to feel like uh, the goods were there. And no one really questioned. And, and of course, another reason was because Leo never missed a payment. So why would you doubt a fellow who seems to be rolling in dough, especially when every time you're supposed to get your 10% comes in in a check? So it all looked legit. But one thing Leo didn't count on was he created such a loyal following. He created so much interest that eventually, by 1923, some of the investors say, we'd like to go to Panama to see our properties. Because by 1923 and the discovery of oil, Leo is telling people that he has vast oil fields in production. He's got a pipeline to ship it to the coast. He's got Standard Oil clamoring for his oil and for a stake in the company. And by 1923, again, perhaps to create interest and to bring in more money, he's paying 60% annual interest to investors. So he has created this monster that needs more money, but also this belief that he's created a whole new set of oil millionaires in Chicago. And as you said, they suddenly or not suddenly, but over time, they start pushing more and more to Leo to say, well, hey, let's jump on a steamer and go down. We'd like to see this stuff for ourselves. They've heard so much about it, they want to see it. And that's when, obviously, Leo's going to have a problem because the moment they get to Panama, they're going to find there's nothing there. Now, he, he knew that they were going down. This isn't something they did behind his back, and he was caught off guard. That's right. Uh, what did he do? And eventually he encouraged them. And you might say, well, why would he do that? Well, again, he's paying huge amounts of interest every month. He's constantly, constantly trying to make sure he doesn't miss payments and create uh, any kind of uh, suspicion. I think by 1923... He knew it was going to crash. So I think, it, so what he did is he saw the chance now to make his escape because he knew he'd have a good week or so before this expedition of investors who wanted to see the oil fields before they got to Panama. It'd take about a week to get down there. It would probably take them a few more days, I think he calculated, before they realized that they'd been had. And that's exactly what happened. So he knew they were going. He saw them off, gave them all gold uh, gold money clips, told them to live like kings because the Bayano syndicate would pay all their expenses. And a half dozen of, of his top investors, who not only had money in Bayano, but they thought they were going to become executives in the company. Some of them had quit good-paying executive jobs so they went down as a fact-finding team. Leo saw them off and then made good on his escape. And so he makes his escape and he goes underground, um, for lack of a better term. Um, and what do uh, Chicago newspapers immediately discover, or pretty quickly discover, about Leo's social life? Well, what happens is uh, by uh, there's uh, some of the some of the most uh, I mean there's a lot of things that were just fun to to write and research in this story, but when the 
uh, investors get to Panama, it takes them days. And it's all documented, telegrams back to Chicago, increasingly desperate. We're not finding anything. Where's Leo? What's going on? Uh, they're, they're going through deeds. They're going through uh, corporate records. They're checking the phone books. They're spending days and days trying to find, if you can believe this, taking them days to find what should be the head office of a major oil corporation. And, and, and before they realize that, oh, my God, there's nothing here. Our good friend has taken us. So word gets back to Chicago, and then front-page coverage in half-dozen daily newspapers in Chicago, all of them uh, pursuing this story. And the question is, well, where's Leo? He's nowhere to be found. His family is hauled through the press. His investors are belittled and uh, ju just because they could be so silly because it turned out Panama didn't, didn't produce any oil and no one had checked. So there was uh, a lot of investors were uh, embarrassed publicly. A lot probably never came forward once they saw the way they, uh, uh, there were certainly rumors that a lot of very wealthy, uh, uh, big name Chicago businessmen who were taken simply nursed their losses because they didn't want to be embarrassed because it would hurt their business to have been seen in this. But if in a few days the media does catch on to one of the things Leo was up to, in that he'd had a string of mistresses while uh, uh, looking like uh, every bit the family man with a wife and two children in suburban Evanston, north of Chicago, that Leo had uh, uh, been doting a little too closely uh, on some of his investors' wives and uh, ultimately was linked to uh, what was called the Southside Love Nest, an apartment he kept. So uh, on top of everything else, he was a liar, a cheat, uh, a con man, and a philanderer to boot. And again, what's remarkable is, is nobody suspected any of this the whole time. Not at all, and and that's another thing. At the time, you know, the press would ask, how could people be so stupid? How could he have done this? How could he have been so persuasive? But uh, the truth is he was, and he did. And as I said, he did all of this without a single accomplice. So uh, that's probably one of the reasons he was, I mean, there were no leaks. Uh, he had a little office, he had a secretary, uh, but no one questioned he was doing what he was doing, and no one asked, no one probed, and uh, there was no one to sort of uh, betray him. So, uh, yeah, so none of this was known. I mean, his, his wife had no idea, and uh, none of his family, I mean, everyone, uh, whoever knew him, uh, uh, was, was totally uh, uh, blindsided by this. Okay, let's pause for a moment on, on Leo's story, um, because you, you dedicate um, quite a bit of time in the book to another major player in this story. Uh, his name is Robert Crow. Uh, who is he? What's his connection to Leo? And um, what was his role in Chicago? Robert Crow was state's attorney in the 1920s, uh, Republican at a time when Chicago was run by the Republicans. And um, Robert Crow is an extremely controversial but shadowy figure. And he comes into the story 
because he becomes his office when he's state's attorney in 1923-24 is uh, leading the investigation to try to find Leo and is leading the investigation to to pick through the ruins of this Piano syndicate and fraud and and uh, and uh, you know coming up with uh, a raft of criminal charges if he can be found. What was interesting about Crow is he he actually knew Leo that 20 years earlier as 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 a young lawyer when Leo was a young lawyer they had actually worked side by side in one of the big Chicago law firms so they had a bit of a history and when i saw that and i knew crow would be a part of the story i realized that crow's story really intertwined with this because crow was controversial because he becomes state's attorney at the time of the rise of the Chicago outfit under Capone, of the the beer wars, of the breakout, uh, outbreak of uh, gangland violence. And while this was a backdrop to Leo's story, Crow became a way of telling that story and really giving a flavor for uh, the lawlessness and uh, um, the uh, the gang wars that were erupting in, in Chicago at the time. I mean, I would see a, a story about Leo and there would be three or four other stories about gangland violence. So it was very much part of the story. But the fates of both Leo and Crow become intertwined in a sense because Crow's office is uh, connected to uh, mobsters. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, of, of allegations and evidence that uh, many of his prosecutors were going easy on mobsters because of their ties. So Robert Crow was under a lot of public and political pressure to do something about gang violence at a time when he didn't seem to want to. He was either incapable of it or didn't want to because of, uh, of the connections of his office. And he was handed Leo Koritz on a silver platter as something that he could possibly, if he could catch this guy, Leo Koritz, it would be a real feather in his cap. It would be a coup for his office, proof that they could at least uh, catch one uh, major criminal who was preying on Chicago at the time. So his story became very much entwined in uh, in Leo's. And uh, Crow also becomes uh, famous uh, shortly after, while Leo is a fugitive from justice. Crow leads the prosecution of Leopold and Loeb, the the crime of the century, as it was called, the uh, the two thrill killers, uh, the young men who murdered uh, a teenager in Chicago, and their their case uh, with Clarence Darrow leading their defense was uh, a huge part of the story as well, because uh, uh, Crow even uh, compared uh, Leopold and Loeb uh, in their greed in in trying to kidnap and and seek ransom for their victim. He said they were operating like Leo Koritz, who at that point was still on the lam, but obviously still in the minds of people in Chicago. So while um, Leo falls in in the lap of, of Robert Crow and, and could be a big win for him if he can catch Leo, uh, Leo's on the run. And, and what does that look like for Leo? Is, is he holed up in some shack out in the woods? Well, um, yes and no. First of all, while his uh, investors were learning the truth in, in uh, Panama, Leo was all over Chicago cleaning out bank accounts, collecting uh, something like one or two million dollars uh, 
just uh, to uh, to uh, ease his uh, his time as a fugitive from justice. He imme- he originally disappears to uh, New York City, uh, where he lives for a time uh, in a, an apartment, grows a beard, which changes his uh, his appearance considerably. But this is you know this is long before. Uh, the internet. It was very easy for him to disappear in a big city like Chicago, and a lot of the uh, the papers in New York didn't run his picture, which was a real win for him. Uh, his picture was plastered all over wanted posters and was all over Chicago. But anyway, he was able to go fly under the radar for a few months, and then he discovered he met a fishing guide from Nova Scotia who was working in a sporting goods store in New York. Who told him about a lodge, a hunting lodge in in uh, the wilderness of Nova Scotia, that was for sale, named Pinehurst. And Leo thought this sounded like exactly what he needed. Uh, the border with Canada was a little more porous, a lot more porous in those days. So he had no trouble uh, uh, coming to Nova Scotia. He bought this lodge, had enough money to renovate it, and he turned it into sort of a uh, a wilderness version of uh, the Great Gatsby's estate on uh, Long Island, where he reinvented himself under a new name and started uh, uh, throwing lavish parties and uh, became this generous uh, American expat. Nobody in Nova Scotia was any the wiser because there've been. I think I only found one or two reports in any of the Halifax papers that there even was this swindle. And of course, no one had any reason to tie it to this very wealthy American who'd shown up in their midst. So he's not taking any um, significant measures to hide. He's kind of living his same life in plain sight. Well, even to the point of uh, Leo Koritz becomes Lou Keat. He even keeps the same initials possibly because he might have had initials on some of his clothing and was worried about rousing suspicion. But for whatever reason, his name wasn't even that different. And when I was doing my research, I thought, is it possible that he was, I knew he was living large, and I thought, well, did he possibly appear in the newspapers under his assumed name? And he did. There would be little notes, social notes, about lavish parties he was holding, again, as Luke Heat. And no one really connecting it, but yeah, when you you think um, you think a swindler would be desperate for business, Leo uh, f- goes against the flow and makes his shares hard to get. You think a fugitive from justice would lay low, and Leo lives large, <laughs> and uh, and uh, really shielded only by uh, distance, uh, the fact that. Uh, he was over a thousand miles away from Chicago, where where nobody had even heard of of a swindler, of uh, the swindle, and also uh, shielded by his new name. And he also took on a new persona. He he fashioned himself um, a uh, literary uh, uh, giant, uh, a man of letters from New York. This was the story he started telling his new friends in Nova Scotia, and. Uh, because he he always had to I guess inflate himself, or he could always come up with some way of uh, of uh, aggrandizing himself. He he actually claimed to have discovered the writer Zane Grey, which is is tantamount to saying you know you discovered 
Stephen King or John Grisham in our day. I mean, Zane Grey was the biggest selling author of the time. So this was among the uh, the new uh, 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 bogus uh, uh, life or or lies that Leo was spinning when he came to uh, Nova Scotia. Right, and so as they're as they're hunting for him, they're they're trying to find him, and it's uh, largely a, a, a fruitless search um, early on. What is what is the status of the justice system back in Chicago, and, and what implications could that potentially have for Leo? Well, the, um, the Robert Crow's uh, men have other investigations to do, obviously, but there are reports that turn out to be false. Uh, they almost send uh, uh, they almost send police to uh, Honolulu because there's a report uh, that he's there. He's thought to be in Paris. Uh, no one really knows where Leo is. The justice system in Chicago is uh, is is. Is, has always been prone at this period, been prone to corruption and jury tampering. Uh, but there was a real crisis in the uh, the, the level of gang violence as, as uh, different uh, mobs competed for territory, hijacked each other's beer or uh, or uh, booze shipments. And uh, again, this is uh, another aspect that uh, of why. Uh, uh, Leo really is sort of on the uh, uh, the radar of, of Robert Crow because uh, if he can find him uh, and bring him back, as I said, if, if he can prosecute him, be seen in pictures with him before the court as justice is served, it, uh, it will help somehow, somewhat to, uh, to repair that image of collusion or... or uh, or in, in, incompetence or impotence that the uh, the authorities in Chicago are, are, are laboring under. So I'll ask you uh, one, one last question here. Um, this was this was a huge case uh, at the time, and it was uh, on the front page of all the dailies in, in Chicago, as you said. Uh, what was the scale of it? How much how much money? Uh, did he swindle people out of, and uh, wh- why do you think that this this model of a scam, the 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 Ponzi or Koritz or Madoff model, why do you think it's so effective at, at separating people from their money? When you run, when a scheme runs as long as Leo's did, the numbers get astronomical. They're not necessarily money lost because, as I said, I mean he's paying out dividends all along he's paying out profits or he's people people are making money uh back so uh, a certain amount of the money is just churned through the through the ponzi scheme and spat back out at uh at, at investors uh but over the course of of the 20 plus years he was running his various scams uh by one estimate up to 30 million dollars in in 1920s terms so that's 400 million dollars today Again, not profit in his pocket, but the kind of money that was flowing through this scheme day in, day out. So it was a, it was a huge scale for the time. And uh, while he only seems to have squirreled away a couple of million dollars when he set out uh, on the lamb, uh, a lot of investors were, had, uh, you know, had lost uh, their principal had, uh, with very few assets to recover against, and uh, as I said, the scale was uh, uh, really uh, a product of how long he had done this. 
why is it successful? I mean, this is this was the question that was asked at the time, and people still ask now. How could people fall for this kind of scheme? And um, in Leo's case, uh, it speaks of just how persuasive and good he was. I mean, you need someone who's a consummate actor to pull this off, to create this kind of unshakable confidence. Confidence so unshakable that people can spend days beating the bushes in Panama City and finding nothing and still assume they're just looking in the wrong place. The obvious answer that they've been hoodwinked was just unacceptable because Leo was not the person to do that. They were sure of that. So he inspired loyalty. He inspired confidence on a scale that's, uh, that's quite amazing. And that's part of the story. But, you know, the enemy is, is us. The enemy is within these investors. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, they're not asking a lot of questions is because people, there's this uh, belief, I think, that you can get in on the ground floor of something, that they've been done a favor, that they weren't skeptical of Leo. By the time a lot of them had convinced him to sell them his stock, his worthless stock, they were so relieved to be part of this that asking tough questions seemed to be the last thing on people's minds. So there's there's something of that in every Ponzi scheme, from Ponzi through Madoff, and there and I'm only talking about the, the the better known. There are Ponzi schemes being exposed even now, even after Madoff. Um, you'd think that a, a scheme that has its own name would make people wary, but the guise is always different. The product's different. It might be gold, it might be uh, some other uh, valuable commodity. It might just be a process. Uh, we had one in Canada where uh, they were refining gold. Well, that doesn't seem to be anything spectacular, but they said they could do it cheaper. Therefore, they could pay more in profits. So um, we still, I think, people are still uh, easily taken by that idea of getting an edge or getting in on the ground floor of a good thing. And that means that these Ponzi schemes uh, just seem to go on and on in different guises. But there's always people willing to, uh, I guess, get caught up in the idea that uh, there's easy money to be made. And I want to make some of that myself. Well, this has been, uh, this was a fascinating, uh, jaw-dropping read and, and a great discussion. If uh, someone is interested in this and they want to pick up the book to see uh, how this all ends, uh, and it ends in a very unbelievable uh, fashion that you know nobody could make this up, uh, where can they find the book and learn more about you? Well, uh, the book is published in the States by Algonquin Books uh, in Canada by HarperCollins Canada. Uh, it's, uh, it's out in paperback. And uh, if you want more information, I mean, it's, it's available online or in most bookstores. But uh, uh, people want to find out a bit more about the book uh, and uh, some of the, the reviews and things on my website, uh, deanjob.com, D-E-A-N-J-O-B-B.com. I tweet under uh, at deanjob, uh, D-E-A-N-J-O-B-B. And, uh, yeah, as you said, uh, we didn't. Uh, we uh, I I, uh, I didn't want to do any uh, spoilers on where it goes from here because uh, 
I, I describe it often as stranger than fiction, and uh, the fact that he ran this elaborate, uh, bogus scheme so long is is in one way hard to believe, but where it all goes after uh, the bubble verse and uh, he escapes uh, for a while, and then what ultimately happens to him, yeah, is uh, is uh, is an incredible story in itself. Absolutely, and and I hope people will check that out and and see how this ends. Um, Dean, thank you so much for coming on today. It's it's been a huge pleasure. Well, thank you. Thanks very much for having me on. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast, and special thanks to my guest, Dean Job for coming on the show today. If you are interested in Dean's book, Empire of Deception, The Incredible Story of a Master Swindler Who Seduced a City and Captivated the Nation, you can find a link to it in the show's description. I've also provided a list of resources, including Dean's other work, on the show's website at www.can'tmakethisuppodcast.com. If you want to listen to other CMTU episodes, they're available on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. I'll see you all again on Tuesday, February 19th for the next episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Make it a great week.